All right, well, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning that we have to gather here together. And Lord, we want to uh, just continue to, to give this time to you. Uh, this, is, this is your time, and we're grateful to be here with your people. And God, I pray that as we open your word, you would come and you would speak clearly to us, that you would guard my words from error that what I say would be accurate and truthful to what you have said. And God, I pray that, that what your word intends for, or what you intend for your word to do through this text this morning would, would indeed be accomplished, that you would both cut and you would both heal, and that your word would, would come and it would reveal areas in our lives that, that, we, uh, that we do fall short, but at the very same time that you would, you would cause us to lean on and re-again, again, put our, our faith and our trust in your unending love. That even when we find ourselves questioning whether or not you would still love us because of areas in our lives that we just see the, 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 the imperfections that still exist, that, that your that your faithful, unending love for us would also heal. And so, God, we pray that you'd come and meet with us in a special way and that we would, we would look more like Jesus as we leave here this morning. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, James 2 is where you want to be. Uh, we broke into James 2 last week, and Pastor Danny walked you through what James has to say about partiality. And James uses the example of a rich man and a poor man, perhaps at that point in this church, in this region where they would have been, uh, by and large, composed of just Jewish believers. Rich and poor may have been the most stark social contrast there was, But I think the implications and the principles that James has for us where we do not show partiality, transcend just social wealth into all other areas and ways that we find ourselves distinguished. So you can put race in that. You can put ethnicity. You can put language. You can put all sorts of different examples into that. And I think the conclusion is still the same. You don't show partiality. Because if you do well and fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you should love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I mean, James has a very clear point there. There's no distinctions. We're not to draw distinctions, and that's incredibly difficult. We live in a, in a world, in 2016 is, is a point in time in our world where distinctions are being drawn all over the place. And the church is called to not have distinctions. The church is called to not have lines that they draw that separates people from other people. And so James has very pointed words for us. This morning he has just as pointed words for us. And these are perhaps the most difficult words that are going to be in the entire book that we're going to look at. And as we thought through a few weeks ago, uh, the, the, really the, the whole point, the whole central idea of the book of James is that you and I would not only be hearers of the word and self-deceived, but we would also be 
doers of the word. And what James then began last week, in beginning of chapter 2, to do is help us to figure out how that applies. And he will do the same today and do so in a way that really will begin to land some heavy blows on you and I as we consider what James has to say. And so there, there is a, a way that we're going to try to break down the text this morning that, that I, I hope is helpful in aiding your understanding of this passage. But this is a passage that has had lots of controversy over the years. And there's even been well-known, respected church fathers back some, some 15, 1,600 years ago that wondered if James, the entire book, should even be in the Bible because of the words that James has to say. And we're not going to skirt around that controversy. I want to talk about it. And I think as we walk through the text, some of those questions will find answered by the text itself. But I ran into this quote, and this will perhaps overwhelm you, but maybe give you some encouragement as well, um, that this morning we are going to, Lord willing, accomplish, quote, deep and nuanced theological synthesis while avoiding exegetically irresponsible reductionism that flattens all distinctions. So you can go to lunch today and you can say, guess what I did? we got to think well, and that's what that quote says. you got to think well. So this morning, we got to think deeply. And we're going to step into some things theologically and biblically that are going to cause us to think. And if we're, if we're not able to think, and if we're not willing to think, and if we don't think, we're going to find ourselves falling on one or the two sides of this controversy or apparent contradiction. And I don't believe there is an apparent contradiction. I don't believe there is a contradiction at all. But let's step into that. Here's how the text will break down for us today. James in verse 14 is going to start off with a question and a claim. He's then going to move on to the example. He's going to go to then the conclusion that he draws, which is repeated in verse 26. But then he begins to argue with a a, a person that is, for at least from our perspective, imaginary. There's not dialogue that is, well, person A said this and and then, you know, James said that. He, 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 he imagines dialogue and rebuttal and refutation of what he has to say. But then he goes through and he begins to answer those questions and give some examples to do so again. And then you have repeated again in verse 24 this controversy. So what is the controversy? Some of you may be wondering for the first time that while the Bible has some controversial things to it says. Well, here it is. The controversy is this. James says in verse 2 or 24 of chapter 2, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So that in and of itself is not controversial if taken just all on its own. The controversy comes when we begin to compare that statement with other statements made in Scripture. Well, it would be the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, verses 28 specifically, but then essentially all of, all of chapter 4, which he'll repeat again even in Galatians chapter 2, 3, and 4, this big idea which is most easily summarized by verse 28 there, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do you see it? The word justified shows up twice, and they they have different things that they say you're justified by. Let's highlight it just so you can see it. Again, I'm not trying to skirt this. Let's just look at it. Let's put the magnifying glass on it. James says that you are 
For people are justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul says that we're justified by faith and that's apart from works of the law. So there's this apparent contradiction in the text. And I'll just quite frankly tell you, if, if we find a legitimate contradiction in the text, we now have reason to begin wondering if the Bible itself is true. I mean, there is a lot at stake here, and you can uh, begin to conclude where we're going to go with this, but there's a lot at stake here. Some of what's at stake here, and some of the answer for us to begin to step through, is how we understand the word justified, how we understand that word to be used in the Scripture. And I, I, I read over this past couple of weeks in, in prep for this that there's five different ways the word justified is used in the scriptures and can be used. Two of them are, are essentially the ones that fit most accurately into the text that Paul and James write. And so we'll just look real briefly at those two definitions. The first would be to be declared righteous. And we could see how James or excuse me, how Paul in Romans 3:28 and in Romans 4 and in quoting Romans 15.6 in Romans 4, or Genesis 15.6 in Romans 4, and then again quoting Genesis 15.6 in Galatians 2, he is using the word justified or justification to mean to be declared righteous. He's saying that. That's his point that he's making. Well, the other main way the word justified can be defined is to be shown or to be proven righteous. And I would submit to you that we see that word show up in in that idea in Genesis 22. And then you've got three other references there, Matthew 11, Romans 3, 1 Timothy 3, 16, where that word is used even twice by Paul to, to not mean declared to be righteous, but shown or proved. To be righteous, And so here, here's the answer to what I believe is the controversy. And then I think as we step through the text, some of those things are going to become clear for you. So let me just give you the answer on the front side. Um, Paul and James are arguing from two different perspectives against two different false claims. Paul's argument is, or what he's arguing against, is the false teaching that you and I can work for our salvation. So in Romans 3.28, when he says that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law, what he is intending to say is that God declares us righteous, not because we have done anything. So you are not declared righteous because you came to church this morning or at some point and sometime you took communion or you dropped a dime into the offering plate. Your righteousness, your, your legal standing before God, where you are, you are given perfection and, and made born again, is not the result of anything that you have done. That's Paul's argument in all of those verses. James' argument is against the false teaching that you and I can simply claim to be a believer with our lips, and live however we want. That it doesn't matter how you live as long as you say the right things. And so when James says that no one is justified by faith alone, he's making an important distinction, 
and doing so to say no one's shown or proven to be righteous by just what they say. It's actually by what they do. And so let's step into the text. I think that'll make a little bit more sense as we get into the text, but I don't want to skirt this controversy because it's a significant point. And if we aren't thinking deeply about that, you could go to James 2.24 and Romans 3.28 and go, wait a minute, these say different things. And and, and on the surface, yes, they do. But I think as we dig a little deeper and look at how these gentlemen are using these words and the points that they're trying to make, it's going to make a little bit more sense. So as we begin, the claim and the question. Go to the text with me. We've got to go to the Bible. We've got to make sure we are going there. The first is the claim and the question. So James writes, verse 14, chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers? So he's talking to believers. He's talking to people in the church. He's talking to people who believe they are Christians. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works. And then he asks this really, really significant question. Can that faith save him? So that's what's at stake here. Salvation is at stake here. And the question that he leads off is, is what good is it if you claim to have faith but you do not have works? So let's think about it in in maybe some ways that we can get our minds wrapped around that that aren't specifically salvation-oriented ways. What if I told you this morning that this past week I was hired by an NBA basketball team and I'm going to be traveling back and forth to the nearest location. I'm going to be playing basketball as the season begins. Okay, you might, you might be impressed by that claim. You might, you might think I'm just an outright liar. But we could argue that. Well, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. It, 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 at some point, what happens in that conversation is we reach a prove-it moment. Okay, well, yeah, you're on an NBA team? Okay, let's see you dunk. Let's see you shoot. Let's see you, you know, let, show me your paycheck. Show me the roster of the team. Show me the depth chart. Like, are you on the B squad? Are you, you know what? You, you end up having a prove it moment where I can claim whatever I want, but if you're going to believe that claim, there needs to be some evidence to support it, correct? Okay, so that's, that's one example. Um, think about it maybe this way, and this has been my life for the last week. Um, we had a surgeon fly up from Tampa. I say like we had as if we had anything to do with it. That's not true. A surgeon flew up from Tampa at his request to perform Tobin surgery. I will at some time later have the opportunity to share a little bit about that man's life. Just amazing what this guy is doing for heart babies. But he called us. We've been interacting on email. We've been talking about, you know, texting, calling on the phone. He said, I want to fly up from Tampa, and I want to perform this surgery on this little guy. Okay, you're, you're a heart surgeon. I mean, there's only so much that I can disagree with in those moments. And, you know, he is well recommended, but, but he's, he's, not, he's not putting a knife to my kid if he doesn't have any type of credentials. I mean, I, I love Mike, but if Mike's like, hey, man, I, I got this surgery thing. Like, I know cards. Let me get in there and work on hearts. And like, hang on. You know, but Dr. Langley has board-certified credentials. He has 
He has schooling that he's gone through. He has hundreds of surgeries that he's performed in the past. There are things that reaches for us this prove-it moment where when he says, I want to do this surgery, we don't really have to have an argument about whether or not he's qualified because he has the credentials that speaks to his qualifications. There are things that prove the claim that he made on the phone that I think I can do it. I'll give you one last one, and this probably is a little bit closer to all of us. Uh, your auto mechanic could look at the car and say a whole bunch of stuff, but you want to know if he knows what he's talking about. And we don't take our cars to people who don't know what they're talking about, right? I mean, as simple as it gets, the four wheels that brought you here this morning, you're, you're not taken to Jiffy Lube if you need a new engine. You're, you're going to find like Eli, who can rip that apart in his backyard and put it back together blindfolded. I mean, that, that's what you're going to do because you're going to find somebody who knows their stuff because they've had these prove-it moments. That's the question that James is putting forth in verse 14. What good is it if someone says, I have faith, but does not have works? If they've never had a prove-it moment, they've never demonstrated what their faith or what their mouth is saying, what good is it? And then he just drops the haymaker, can that faith save him? The implication of that rhetorical question is, no, it cannot. And he steps further and begins to now give us an example. Verse 15, if a brother or sister, again, so this is somebody in the church. He's writing to people in the church. What good is it, my brothers? And then in verse 15, he says, if a brother or sister. So those are people in your congregation. That's you in this room or the little kids downstairs. We are talking about not the person you see in Chicago or or, New York on the streets. We're talking about somebody you go to church with. What good is it? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So the example that James now gives to begin to illustrate his point, that it is worthless for you to say things and not prove it. Is all right, consider a Sunday morning. Somebody walks in here, been a part of, you know, pick whomever you want. Maybe they've just recently lost their job. They, they come in, haven't eaten for a little bit. You know, the kids' clothes are, are maybe not washed because the washing machine's broken. And you're like, hey, you have a great morning. You'd be blessed. Be warm and filled. Yeah, it, it, it's good to see you. And there are needs that are apparent before you. You do absolutely nothing about. This is the example James gives. He's not talking just about beggars that are on the street. Because I, I think there's, there's a, a point of where wisdom needs to get involved there. Where we don't just hand money to people on the streets of New York. We, we want to buy them a Big Mac or something. Uh, talk about people in the church somebody walks in and they are lacking the very daily necessities needed they're unclothed they're poorly clothed they haven't had their daily food they haven't had breakfast there may not be any anticipation of lunch and all you've got is a handshake and a smile and a pat on the back you have a great sunday it's it's worthless this is the example that James is using because you can say whatever you want with your mouth and the statement, be warm and filled, go in peace, it sounds really good, doesn't it? 
You tell a little kid, hey, go in peace, and they're not going to have lunch. There's not a lot of peace there. Be warm and filled, but they're lacking winter clothing as the temperature begins to turn. There's not a lot of warmth there at all. So he gives us this example to consider in regards to this claim that what you say, if you don't back it up with what you do, it's worthless. And when it comes to faith, you can claim whatever you want with your lips. But if your actions are not demonstrating that, that is not saving faith. So let's continue. He finishes up the example and he just draws the conclusion in verse 17. He does so almost verbatim in verse 26. And then what happens in verses 18 to 25 is he just gives examples of how this works itself out. But in verse 17, James says this, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That faith is not a saving faith. You can claim whatever you want with your lips, but if it has not been demonstrated with your actions, it's dead. And he draws this conclusion. Verse 26, again, it's almost verbatim. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And then in verse 25, or excuse me, verse 18, James now begins to have this imaginary conversation with somebody who's going to take issue with what he has just said. And the imaginary conversation, which is of great significance to us, begins in verse 18. And James writes, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Someone's going to take issue with that fact, that there needs to be a proven moment. There needs to be action that, that corresponds with what your lips says. And that person's going to say, you know what, you can, you can do what you want to do, and I'm going to say what I want to say, and I've got, I've got faith, you've got works, or vice versa, and, 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 and that's good. We can kind of fall on either side of that, and, and, and that'll be okay. And there's this rebuttal that somebody begins to bring up and say, you know, I don't think we really need both. I think we, we really just need one or the other. And so, you know, you have faith, I have works, either's fine. And James steps in to refute this rebuttal. And in the second half of verse 18, he begins to write, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith. By my works. That first word, show, James writes as a command. So if you would sit here this morning and you would be that person who would argue with James, hey, you know what? It works on. I don't need to do anything. I just need to say the right things, right? You just need to come in. I need to kind of utter a few of those really special, important phrases that seem to always get uttered on Sunday mornings, and I'm good. And James would have an issue with that and be like, no, no. And he's going to give you now the command show me your faith, apart from your works. Just show it. Prove it. He's he's challenging you, challenging me to this prove it moment. And I will show you, that word is written differently. It's written in a way that says, I'm going to indicate to you. I'm going to demonstrate to you my faith apart from my works. 
And he continues, verse 19. You believe that God is one. Okay, so there's the, there, there's the acknowledgement of Christian orthodoxy that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Again, James, is, he's just chipping away. He continues to just hammer away at this idea that just merely you and I having the right intellectual understanding and having said the right words at a gathering is saving faith. And he says, no. Because the the right intellectual understanding, perhaps even the right words that are spoken, is an understanding the demons have. It's words that the demons spoke in Jesus' ministry as recorded in the Gospels. There were moments that he he came and had conflicts and confrontations with the demons that were possessing people, and they rightly acknowledged who he was. So they had an intellectual understanding. Their mouths said true Christian things. And the point that James is making here is that the, the demons aren't believers. They've not been born again. And so it's not just merely you believing in, in, in kind of a mental understanding acquiescence or acknowledgement of facts. It's not just believing the right things that way, not even just saying the right things in that regard. It's far greater than that. And in verse 20, he says, do you want to be shown? He's asking a question. You want me to prove to you with examples that you clearly will know? You want me to show you O oh, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Verse 21, was Abraham our father? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. He draws the conclusion. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the first example that James steps in and gives is the example of Abraham. Now for a Jewish person, Abraham was, he was the patriarch. He was the one all the way back into Genesis 12 that the Lord called to be the father of the Israelites that we, that we now understand as, as further revelation came into the New Testament, became the father of all believers. And so we can have our kids sing Father Abraham because you and I as believers can trace our spiritual heritage back to Abraham. He is our patriarch as well. So the patriarch, the figurehead, Here's the example, the first one that he gives. And he says, well, wasn't he justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? James begins by giving us the example of Abraham, the, pro, or the patriarch. He will also give us the example of Rahab, the prostitute. It may not get any further in contrast than that. And those are significant people that he picks. In regards to Abraham, James quotes, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. James quotes that and says that scripture was completed, and it was fulfilled 
by what happened as he offered Isaac on the altar. Well, the offering of Isaac on the altar happens in Genesis 22, verses 1 to 3. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Well, the text goes on and records for us that Abraham did not argue with God. He did not delay in obeying God. He told Isaac and his serpents, time to get ready for a journey. Let's get the wood. Let's get everything loaded up on the mules and let's go. And they just began to go. And they reached a point in their journey where Abraham then told the servants, you wait here and the boy and I are going to go up. And Isaac at one point asked his father, where's the sacrifice? We were going to sacrifice. Where's the lamb? And Abraham replies, well, God will provide. And it gets to the point where Isaac is actually on the altar and he raises the knife against, or Abraham raises the knife against altar, Isaac, and he hears the words of the Lord tell him to stop. And part of what makes this event so significant is that the promise that the Lord made to Abraham in Genesis 12 that was reaffirmed thereafter in the following chapters was a promise that he would be the father of many nations. And that Sarah would have a child. And that fatherhood would come through the child that Sarah bore. So if the promise has been given that you will be the father of many nations, and the Lord now tells you to actually cut off the line that he promised for you to be the father through, there's some significant challenges there. But there was no delay in Abraham's obedience. He took Isaac, and the Lord then provided an offering. Hebrews actually tells us that Abraham had actually reasoned that even if he had killed Isaac, God could bring him back from the dead. Now, I don't want us to get caught up in, in the example of Abraham to the degree that if, if you think, quote-unquote, the Lord tells you to kill one of your children later today, he, he didn't. His word very clearly says otherwise. But Abraham was tested. And James is telling us, was not Abraham justified? I think that's where we see that second definition, definition come in. Was he not proven, shown to be righteous when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. You see that faith was active. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. That word completed means to be brought to maturity or to fruition. It's not the idea of absolute perfection. It's the idea there that there is a, there's a growing and a maturing there because earlier in Abraham's life, God had told him some things and he made some pretty boneheaded mistakes. Abraham was not a perfect example of a man who obeyed perfectly. And he offered his wife to other men on two different occasions to avoid being killed himself. This was not a guy that had everything right. But the point James is making in the event of Genesis 22 that Hebrews 11 even talks about is that his faith grew and matured and it it saw a, 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 a completion in that sense when he was willing to lay down everything on that altar. And 
You see James continue, verse 23, and Scripture was fulfilled. That word fulfilled it isn't in the sense of, um, of, of being... Uh, of <clears throat> well, it, it's fulfilled in the sense that it, it, it's met its intended goal. That what was said of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, that the Lord counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Met its intended goal goal, where that faith that Abraham had was demonstrated through his actions. If you just consider that event from the perspective of Abraham, I don't think there's anything in this event in Abraham's life that leads us to conclude he thought he was working for his salvation. If anything, everything that Abraham did was because he understood his relationship to the Lord. He understood that when the Lord says, go and do this, it's time to get up and go and do it. And he did. There wasn't anything in this event of Genesis 22 where Isaac and Abraham and the altar and the ram, there wasn't anything in that event where you can see Abraham understanding, well, I better do this so that I can get to heaven. He did it because of his relationship with the Lord. And James says, that's the first example I have for you. The second example then is of Rahab, the prostitute. And this one, you can go to Joshua 2 later on today and you can read about that. It's a significant example. James says in verse 25, In the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received messengers and sent them out another Way. Again, his, his point is exactly the same, and he gives another illustration to cause us to stop and consider what he's saying. And he tells us, I want you to consider Abraham the, prost- or the patriarch, and I want you to consider Rahab the prostitute. Rahab wasn't even a part of the nation of Israel. She was a part of another nation. And in Joshua 2, that's when the spies go in for the second time, and they're beginning to scope out the land, and we're not going to take the time this morning to read the text, but the big idea is, is that everybody in Canaan knew that the spies had come and they knew what was going to happen. And Rahab hides the spies and she tells them, look, I've heard of what the Lord has done. And I know who he is. And I know what he's going to do here. And so she demonstrated her faith in God by hiding the spies. Rahab also shows up in Hebrews chapter 11, which is often termed the hall of faith. Rahab actually shows up in the line and lineage of Jesus. She is one of his great-grandmothers, like 15, 16 generations before. You see God's grace in this woman's life that, that she had a profession of ill repute. She heard of who the Lord was. And she demonstrated her faith in who the Lord was by actually helping the spies get out, hiding them. Rahab, again, was not an example of perfect faith by any means. But she was an example of genuine faith. And James tells us in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead dead. And that's what he wants us to understand. That's why he writes these 
really, really potentially difficult words for you and I because it's not enough to just say the right things with our lips. There should be the consistent desire of our hearts and demonstration through our actions that we actually believe what we say we believe. And James didn't write this to simply cause us to take Romans 3.28 and James 2.26 and wonder and speculate and get all theological and do deep, nuanced, theological, exegetical analysis that you're going to be proud about when you go to lunch this afternoon. He didn't write that so we could have that type of moment of scholarship. He wrote these things because he wanted us to understand and he wanted us to understand in a powerful way that you can say whatever you want with your lips. But your actions are going to say far more than your mouth does. And if your actions are not demonstrating the faith that you say you have, you may not have saving faith. And that's part of the reason that song that we sang earlier, Brokenness Aside, is such an important understanding for us because it's not that James wants perfection. Well, he, he wants perfection. It's not that he's demanding that we be perfect to have all of that figured out. The question again, as it is in countless other passages of Scripture, is one of direction. Abraham had a bunch of bumps in the road, but continued to demonstrate his faith, and did so when it would cost him everything. Rahab certainly had some bumps in the road. She demonstrated her faith when it costed her betraying her country. And you just consider that for a moment in that way. She, can, she betrayed her nation because she bent her knee to God. So I, I think in, in many ways what James has to say is that Abraham and Rahab are examples of believers who were willing to sacrifice everything in obedience to God. That they were willing to lay it all down. Their, their faith in God was a saving faith. It was a, it was a faith that worked. It was one that placed their faith and trust in the promises of God. And James says, you and I are called to do the very same thing. We're called to respond in the very same way of obedience to the Lord. Now, I I don't want you just to reduce this point this morning to just merely like the Ten Commandments or or, or the other aspects of of behavior. I mean, there's certainly a part of it. And so when, you know, we're not to look lustfully or not to hate or not to show partiality, that's certainly a part of it. And that, that fits the application here. But I think there's, there's a far greater cry in this text that are we going to be willing to do the hard things when called to do them? Abraham putting Isaac on that altar was a hard thing. Rahab betraying her country was a hard thing. You and I are going to be willing to do the hard things. Hey, I don't want you to just leave here this morning and, and, and 
think that this passage just means, well, I've got to work better at obeying the Lord and the little things in my life. It certainly means that. But I think it, it, it goes so much further beyond that. Are you and I willing to do the hard things? Are we, are we willing, as the other song that we sing, which we'll sing here in just 30 seconds, are we willing to say, Spirit, lead me? Till my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters. And are we willing to say that? Are we willing to say, here's my life, here's my heart? Are we willing to say, I surrender all? Or, or perhaps are we going to be honest and say, I surrender most? And are we going to be willing to say that to the Lord and go, here, here it is. Here's my life. You, you take it. You, you let me know what you want me to do. And you, you call me and you reveal it to me and, and, you, you, and I'm going to follow. I mean, are we willing to do that? So does this mean that you and I are supposed to demonstrate our faith in the little things in life? Absolutely. But I think it's far greater than that. Are we willing to care for widows and orphans? Are you willing to say no to a nap in a football game this afternoon at 2 o'clock so you can go and participate in a life chain event and actually demonstrate that you're pro-life? And it, those are some of the things. Well, what if, what if a coworker sees me? What if somebody yells at me? Well, I've been yelled at when I've been down there. I've been cussed at when I've been down there. It doesn't hurt that bad, okay? Are we willing to do those things? Are you, you willing, willing to sit down with Michelle Crawford and find out he, how you can get involved in stopping human trafficking? Are you willing to say, here's my checkbook, Lord. I want to follow you. So spirit... Lead me till my trust is without borders. I think that's the cry of this text. Because it's what the Lord wants the cry of our hearts to be. That we would we'd want to so passionately and consistently follow the Lord in every aspect of our lives that we're willing to do whatever it takes in obedience to Him. So the band's going to lead us as we just think and sing and respond. Would you stand?